Talk Recorded live. Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. listening from and welcome to IAQ Radio Indoor Air Quality Radio for Friday, August 19th, 2011. This week episode 218 comes to you from Studio C in beautiful McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. I am back in the studio with my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Welcome back, Joe. Welcome Good. back. Good to be back, Cliff. And at the controls is our engineer, Austin Stone Cold Novak. Today's segments include the IAQ Radio trivia question, an interview with Mr. Danny Greenblatt, CEO of EnviroTech Clean Air, halftime with Mr. Glenn Fellman, IE Connections, and we'll go to the roundup with our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Expect to see him on the line any moment. We have been updating and adding a blog every week to the IAQ Radio website. Check it out at iaqradio.com. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right. To contact the show, you just follow the link on your show invitation that says go to the show or go to the iaqradio.com website, and there's a link on there that says go to the show. You can also download the show afterwards at the IAQ Radio website or, of course, on iTunes. Don't forget we have ABIH, IICRC, and ACAC renewal credits by emailing me and requesting a quiz at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com and last but not least please visit the iaq training institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com let's turn it over to the z-man for today's iaq radio trivia question thanks joe Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Email it to czlotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, just text in your answer. We're sorry to report that there was no correct answer to last week's trivia question. So the IQ trivia question for Friday, August 19th, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Now for this week's trivia question, which is a repeat of last week's. Name the mushroom species responsible for the majority of fatal and or other serious <clears throat> mushroom poisoning cases domestically and worldwide. Back to you, Joe. All right. Today, Danny Greenblatt is with us. He's the founder and president of EnviroTech Clean Air, Inc., an HVAC systems cleaning and restoration company. 
and an indoor air quality cleaning company. He is an officer, committee chair, and active volunteer in several industry associations, including being an officer and member of the Indoor Air Quality Association and the Indoor Environmental Standards Organization. He's on both boards of directors. Danny's been doing HVAC cleaning and working in the indoor air quality world for about 25 years now. And we look forward to his views on current events in the industry. Before we do that, we've got a little intro music. It's time to think about it. It's time to sound an alarm. We can't be waiting too long. Polluting air is so wrong, 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 wrong. Okay, the clean air, it's what I need here. I need some clean air. I can't breathe. Oh, won't you give me, give me clean air? All right, Danny, do we have you on the line? Hello. Hello, Danny. Welcome. Hi, Joe. Thank you so much for having, uh, having me. This is great. Our pleasure. It's uh, we've, You and I have talked quite a bit, but I've never had a chance to get you on the air, and we're looking forward to a, a nice discussion today. We'll also have a few other people joining us as we go along. We've got Glenn Feldman at halftime. But before we do that, let's uh, talk a little bit about your background in the IAQ world, and in particular, the HVAC cleaning industry. How did, how did you get started in HVAC cleaning, Danny? Um. Back in around the mid-80s, there was an opportunity where phrases like sick building syndrome, indoor air quality, that became really present. And from back in the 60s and 70s, uh, always had environmental tendencies. I worked on an island preserve as a scuba diving instructor, which is still an island preserve. I was looking for that kind of work in the environmental industries. But I had a carpet cleaning business in the late 80s. We had an opportunity to start doing some air duct cleaning. It was the same time that NADCO was forming, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association. Uh, we got a good start doing some networking, education, some programs with certifications and standards. And I be we began cleaning air ducts and getting into other aspects of indoor air quality. Uh, another way of saying it, as my buddy Ron would say, I just got lucky. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Now, I'm curious... Uh, over you've been you're looking at 25 going on 30 years now of doing HVAC cleaning have things changed a great deal in your experience over that 30 year period or so uh things have changed a tremendous amount i think that when we first started cleaning air ducts as far as i knew there was no HVAC mechanical system air duct cleaning industry we began advertising and marketing and i don't think anybody in this area I know there were people that said that say that they've been doing it since the 50s in this area, but I don't. I didn't know any of them at the time. I hadn't even heard of the industry. So has it changed? Yes, the entire industry has completely developed since that time. You know, I didn't mention what area you're in in your introduction. I know you're outside of Boston. Is it what Stoneham? Yes, we're in Stoneham, Massachusetts, and it is right outside of Boston. Yes, Dan, Danny, what sort of product mix of services does Envirotech? clean air perform and with this do you do both residential industrial and, and commercial yes uh, most of our work is uh, in, in terms of volume revenue streams probably 70% of it is commercial 30% residential in terms of the numbers of jobs we do since the commercial jobs are generally larger we do more uh, a larger number of residential jobs what the services we perform uh, indoor air quality services, mechanical system, HVAC cleaning and restoration, and mold remediation, as well as other specialty types of cleaning. Okay. I I know that you've done some big projects, and I know recently um, you were part of an integrated team, and it's probably not the only time that you've been part of an integrated team working on an IEQ project. But before we go any further, could you tell us what you mean by an integrated team? Sure, that, that's a good question. An integrated uh, team, it, it, it brings together the different disciplines that make up the indoor environmental uh, quality industry. It brings together different disciplines to form a team to uh, try and find a solution to solve a problem. 
disciplines like building science, mechanical HVAC engineers, sometimes public health, air duct cleaning, uh, mold remediation, uh, industrial hygienists, and general contractors. So the integrated team brings us all together to solve a problem and work out the solutions together. You know, I'm, I'm curious about how it obviously costs more money to bring in an integrated, integrated group of people. And in my experience, and I'm sure in yours, building owners aren't always interested in that additional cost of bringing in extra people. How do you talk about, uh, you know, to building owners about the need for an integrated team on projects when you, when you think it's necessary? Uh, it really has a lot to do with how you can educate the, uh, the building owner. Uh, very often, it could be more cost-effective to bring in the integrated team. Uh, it, it depends on, on the job or on the project. Uh, some projects can be really sensitive. Uh, the scope of work at large jobs, it can be more cost-effective to bring in a team because remediation alone maybe just a band-aid if all of the problems that led up to the remediation haven't been addressed. So it has to do with educating and talking to the building owner or the client, and sometimes it can't be done. Sometimes they don't want to go through a team. They would like us to just come in and solve their whole problem. And I assume there's times when you do that as well? Uh, well, yes and no. It, it, I'd like to take some kind of a philosophical uh, stance here and say, no, we would never go in there alone because we're not industrial hygienists. We're not building scientists. Uh, but sometimes it is much more practical, and it's really pretty obvious uh, what needs to be done. Uh, take, for example, a picture that you're in a mechanical room uh, on a third floor that's uh, in the middle of a building, and there's mold growing up the wall. And, oh, the uh, con the the drain pan is clogged, and it's obviously been flooded several times. You can see the mold. You don't need somebody to come in and test you, tell you what kind of mold it is and where it is. So sometimes we can solve the whole uh, issue ourselves. Certainly in residential uh, air duct cleaning issues or sometimes in just a simpler scope of work, you don't need a whole team. Correct. We always... Uh, tell people, we always try and get people to bring in a third-party independent person to do the, uh, the testing, the sampling, the uh, post-remediation clearance, but sometimes it's not practical. That's true. You know, HVAC system cleaning comes along with a certain amount of trust. You know, I, I think as the contractor, you're forced to trust, you know, the engineering and the design uh, of the system and the installation of the system and you know in certain situations um you know poor design poor installation um you know poor equipment specification can actually create problems would you agree with that absolutely that's um it's really simple and basic that we can only perform uh, the mechanical system cleaning operations we have to work with other people if there are other problems that have to do with um with the building science, with the uh, engineering of the system, with the airflows. So certainly, uh, sometimes uh, it goes well beyond cleaning, restoration, and maintenance of the systems. Danny, I'm curious. I, I just came back from Virginia. Virginia has a new state law on mold. And, you know, I, I know we didn't talk about this before, but, you know, I, you, you're pretty sharp on your feet here. They're now requiring people that are remediators to be licensed and people that are inspectors to be licensed. And the reason this came to my mind was that you mentioned that you have, you notify building owners that these third party consultants are available if they want to have a third party consultant to come in and, you know, kind of oversee the project for them and tell them when it's done. And I'm just curious, what are your thoughts on licensing within the mold remediation industry at least? Uh, we more than suggest that they have a third-party remediator. Uh, we, we really want to work with a third-party remediator that we can understand what the requirements, the scope, what, the, uh, what, what, it, what is successful completion of this uh, job. As far as the licensing of mold remediators, you know, I've seen that uh, work and I've seen it not work. Um, I'm not really in favor of there being a licensing in Massachusetts. I would rather not have another hoop to 
jump through. At the same time, sometimes we do, uh, you can run into unscrupulous uh, uh, molds and mediators. I work with an awful lot of the people in the area. I'm working at the state house, uh, talking to the state reps uh, about issues like that. And uh, I work with many, many of the industrial hygienists and the other uh, mold remediation companies. And we know who's out there and we know what they're doing. As far as there being another uh, thing for us to do for licensing, um, I don't know, maybe I'm uh, just uh, an old horse that wasn't it doesn't want to do a new trick, but I can't say I really want to go there. I appreciate your honesty there. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the other major things that people know, or at least people that know you are aware that, you know, you were part of a big team that helped solve and clean up a moisture problem for some air traffic controllers. And I, I don't even remember exactly what city. If you want to tell us, that's fine. If not, we understand. But can you tell the listeners what your role was on that particular team? Sure. Well, my role was quite simply, we did the mechanic, the HVAC mechanical system cleaning and restoration. Okay. That's really what our role was. We worked with a great, great, great in- integrated team. What an interesting project it was also. And there was a fabulous building scientist. Everybody knows Joe Steebrook. Bob Baker was on the job, Eugene Cole. There were so many different disciplines represented in our role. We were the HVAC mechanical system cleaning contractor. And was there also a mold remediation contractor, or was that part of your project? No, there was a, a separate mold remediation contractor. It's turned into uh, it's been quite a uh, quite a project, and uh, there was uh, quite a lot of work for the mold remediation contractor to do, also separate from the uh, air conditioning uh, HVAC system cleaning. You know, Danny, one of the things I I just ran across this again. I um, there's a little bit of discussion within the industry. I don't think it's a big deal, but it's, I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Do you do the HVAC cleaning before the mold remediation or after the mold remediation or at the same time? Or do you have uh, a preference? I think you should, yes, do the mold remediation cleaning first. The mold remediation is going to uh, inevitably stir some things up. Absolutely, you can seal off the HVAC mechanical system, but it should be the last thing that you do. Great. Okay. That's, that's, that's what I thought, but I wanted to make sure I checked with one of the experts out there. Well, <laughs> I, I guess, could you tell the listeners a little bit about some of the technical challenges and, and uh, problems that you had to deal with, uh, you know, cleaning the HVAC system in a unique facility such as an air traffic control tower? I guess maybe you could sure. paint, paint a picture for us first of what that tower looks like. I don't know if people really realize what's in there. Um, okay, it's um, a funnel that sticks up in the air with a big thing on the top that goes around and around. Uh, and when the rain comes down out of the sky, it gets on that. And if that isn't protected, uh, then the rainwater can get in. There's an awful lot of mold food called sheetrock inside. It can be trapped there and it can grow. That could happen in any building. And so in an air traffic control tower, what you have is an absolutely critical operation a critical operation that can't stop day and night. There are planes in the air. I'm not really necessarily an expert on anything about air traffic control or anything like that, but I can tell you that though, that they're very, very important uh, to keep those planes up in the air, tell them when to take off. Uh, everything that happens uh, at an airport with airplanes comes out of the air traffic control tower, so it is a critical operation, and it can't be shut down. Uh, and... Those folks work so hard to protect our the, the flying public's safety. You know, my hat is off to them for how hard they work, and that is the first and most important consideration is the flying public safety. Uh, how that translates into what we do, I don't think that the, pro, the issues that we deal with are as much technical. Uh, they are technical, but they're, they're as much operational as they are technical. We can't be making noise in the air traffic control tower while planes are landing and taking off. Uh, We work at night. Uh, Certain sections have to be separated and contained. Um, And contingency planning, I would say that we're working with people from from all of those facilities, uh, 
safety engineers, the integrated team, working very hard because this is a critical operation. It's been a fabulous project. I really liked it, and my hat is off to everybody who's worked on it. Danny, let me ask a question. I've got I, I, when you started to describe it, I looked at Cliff's microphone and I thought, okay, if we set that microphone on on the table, basically, I'd be looking at an air traffic control tower, and at the top is the the ball where all the people sit, and then there's the cone going up, as you, as you mentioned. Is there any? Are there any components of the mechanical system in the cone, or are they all at the top? And, and where is the actual air handling unit? Is it on the roof of the of the of the ball, or uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, I can tell you a little bit that the mechanical systems that we work on are up near the top. There are uh, areas called uh, subjunction. It's where the units themselves are the subjunction, the junction. There are mechanical systems in there, and they have uh, ventilation systems that run up into the tower itself, into the top of the tower. And yes, there are systems up there. There uh, there's ductwork up there. There's also a base building where there can be mechanical systems, and there are other parts of the air traffic control system that are down in the base building. And all of that is ventilated also with mechanical systems and air ducts, as well as individual units that cool all of the equipment, that cool the uh, computerized systems uh, that are just critical to the safety of the flying public. Dan, is, is there a particular era air traffic control building that, that posed a problem, or are they all a problem, or are there some that aren't the problem? Uh, are there some geogra- you know, geographies where it's more of a problem? Um, to my understanding, there was a particular design that uh, has um, been more of an issue than others. It's something that's called a daily tower, and there are a few of them around the country that uh, all have to uh, you know, address this issue, uh, and I think they're doing a good job in trying to address these issues. And it is, it, it's difficult. Uh, there's so much and so many people involved uh, that, uh, yes, that there is a particular design of tower that I believe is a little bit uh, more uh, at risk than some of the others. Dan, when you, in this type of cleaning, I'm just curious, do they have metal duct work? Um, Is there, you know, flex duct? Is there some kind of duct board? What what exactly were you cleaning in there? What type of duct work, I'm wondering? Much of the duct work that we cleaned was internally lined. Um, There certainly uh, is some flex duct internally lined. Uh, there's relatively little sheet metal duct work. Most of it was internally lined that we've worked on so far. And did you have to cut access panels and go up and did you actually physically vacuum these out or did you use uh, whips or I wouldn't, I guess you wouldn't use a brush. Well, I guess you could use a brush in some areas, but I'm, I'm curious, do you know how, the, I know you weren't necessarily there on the job site every day, but do you know what the most common method was for cleaning those? Yeah, on the internally lined ductwork, we hand contact vacuumed an awful lot of it. You hand contact vacuum that. You're right. You can't use uh, things that will abrade it or tear it apart. So a lot of it gets hand contact vacuumed. Some of it, if it was, uh, if it had any kind of uh, a, con- there was an industrial, there is an industrial hygienist. A lot of testing has been done, uh, and. It has to be visually clean. If they felt that it was abraded or if they felt that it was contaminated, then it was removed and re- replaced with a, a closed cell um, foam, Armaflex, or something like that. So, hand contact vacuuming, replacing, and uh, no, no uh, harsh brushes on the internally lined ductwork, obviously. And I assume you also had some kind of primary vacuum collection set up. Would that was that a difficult thing to do because you've got you know, restraints on the noise, like you said, and maybe uh, space restrictions, I guess, on the, where you could put your equipment. Was that a problem for you there? Uh, a problem, no. It certainly is a consideration. Everything was done uh, under containment, meaning that, yes, we did. Uh, we made access. We attached uh, some negative air collectors. Uh, everything was done under a negative pressure, and uh, all of the work that we did was done at night and yes in small sections at a time okay so that was one of the keys i I would imagine is is separating it into very small sections while you're doing that work 
Yeah, uh, one system at a time, and generally we tried to do a system as quickly as we could, starting from the return air uh, so that nothing that we cleaned uh, would then be able to be cross-contaminated by having an uncleaned area blow across. So starting at the return side, like in any mechanical system cleaning, this is always how it should be done. You start at the return, you work your way back to the air handling unit, and then you go out through the supply ductwork. And uh, if we weren't a, if we weren't going to be able to do an entire system at a time, then yes, uh, it was done in sections as I described. Okay, Danny. Well, in terms of you know uh, contact vacuuming, uh, did you apply any coating or anything like that afterwards to make future maintenance easy? Yeah, I, I don't think, you know, we certainly discussed using coatings, but we didn't want to use coatings. Uh, you know, there are pros and cons to using a coating, and we didn't want to have any residual uh, odors. Uh, I think that uh, rather than doing any coatings in the work that we did, if something was in a, uh, if it was in that uh, kind of a uh, situation, it would be removed and replaced. Okay. Well, Danny, you know, that... I didn't mean it this way, but Cliff segued right into the next topic we had on the list here, which was the new NADCA. Uh, I think it's a what a position statement on chemical applic yeah chemical application position paper. We've got about three or four minutes before our halftime. Let's talk a little bit about that and get your thoughts on what's coming out from NADCA and and how you're involved with that process. Uh, I think this is a, a great, great thing that NADCA is doing. I first heard about it when I was uh, at their last national convention, and I found that they, are, they were going to create a, a white paper, a position paper about chemical product applications in HVAC systems. NADCA is the authority. NADCA, it, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, is who people go to for answers about things like this. And whether you're answering uh, a client, a customer, or an air duct cleaner, there's so much that's spoken about and written. Uh, as Cliff's last question about uh, coatings, mechanical repair coatings. So NADCA is working on a position paper for chemical product application, and I think it's a, a great, uh, it's a great paper. I'm working with a team. Uh, defining what the products are, the pros and cons, the best practices. I really look forward to this paper coming out. It should be out uh, hopefully this year, but certainly uh, by the next NADCA convention is really what we're hoping. What are the major categories? I, you know, you and I talked a little before the show, and I want to make sure that our listeners, I, sometimes I don't think people realize there's more than just antimicrobials or biocides that are used in HVAC systems. There's, I think you had four different categories of chemical products that you were working on? Well, I'd say this is probably more than four, but I can name a few. Uh, there are sealants. Uh, they're coatings that are used to seal surfaces, joints, connections, and gaps uh, or openings inside of ductwork. Uh, there's also coatings, resurfacing uh, coatings. Uh, there are pros and cons to the resurfacing coatings. Uh, there are the antimicrobials. There are coil cleaners. Um, I think that uh, even ozone, you would call something uh, as a product, a chemical, uh, that the application of which in the mechanical system should be talked about. So, yes, there are many class categories that will be addressed in this position paper. I really look forward to it coming out. You know, you mentioned great, great people working on this. Uh, yeah, you, met, you, you mentioned ozone. What about uh, UV light? Uh, UV light will be addressed. Curious, Danny. Can you give us some broad overview of of how these, you know, what how the how the discussions have gone and where you think the final document will will come out? Um, yeah, I think I can give you a, you know a broad overview. I'd like to uh, say more, be able to. Say, and I don't mean that there's some big veil of secrecy around this. This is um, there. This is a transparent document. We talk about uh, say something like uh, mechanical repair coding. Speaking about, you know, what it is, uh, all of the people on the call, uh, you know, we have a basic format. We talk about the, the product definition, the typical uses, the application methods, the pros and cons. Uh, we talk about if there are any EPA classifications for this and the best practices uh, for these types of products. Uh, 
that are used in HVAC mechanical systems and ductwork. How how long do you think before that document will be available for listeners? Uh, I would say that we're hoping it will be this year. We're hoping that it will be done by the end of the year. We're meeting um, at, at least once a month. I'm hoping that it will be done by December. It really, uh, I think it will probably be presented uh, early next year at the NACA convention, but I don't think I should be saying, I, I just don't know. Okay. We're working hard on it right now, and I'd like to see it come out by the NACA convention in the spring, in March. Well, when it does, we'll have someone on from NADCA to go into more detail. They are one of our sponsors here, so we'll be happy to promote that when it comes out. Danny, we're running up really, to half. I really had a good time working with them. I'm, I'm sure you've had some great – I know you talked to me about who a few of the people were, and there were obviously some very knowledgeable people working on that uh, document. And it sounds like, to me, it's going to be an educational document more so than – a document that says this is the way you do it, uh, a standard or whatever you want to call it? It is not a standard. That's right. Uh, we talked about what to call it. It's a position paper. Um, people, uh, no matter what type of an agency or association, no matter what you represent, when people look to you for an answer on something, uh, this should be a, uh, shall I call it a standardized answer that represents the position of that association or agency to the public, to the people who use the product, whether they're the uh, the clients or the or the people that apply it, and there should be standardized answers. And I think that that's really the approach that's being taken: is uh, how can we address these questions when we're being asked? There will be a frequently asked question part of the document. Great. Well, Dan thanks, Danny. Can you hang on? We're going to do our halftime What's News, and then we'll bring you back for the second half. I'll look forward to it. Thanks. Thank you. association sponsors are the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental and consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. And, of course, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfactswithanx.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Okay, next up we've got Mr. Glenn Fellman with this week's IE Connections What's News. Do we have any music for Glenn, my engineer's trying to get me sued here, man. We got to get rid of that clip. Uh, I know, uh, I got the second cease and desist letter last week. <laughs> What's news, Glenn? Uh, I got two big stories for you this week, Joe and Cliff. First headline, headline of the week. The USGBC beats the lead false advertising claims lawsuit. A U.S. District Court in New York City two days ago dismissed a lawsuit charging the U.S. Green Building Council with false advertising 
over its leadership in energy and environmental design, or LEED, certification. Henry Gifford, an energy efficiency professional, filed the class action suit in October. He alleged that USGBC uh, had falsely claimed that its rating systems makes buildings save energy. Gifford has claimed that buildings can receive the highest LEED ratings regardless of how much energy or water they use. Uh, USGBC says the court dismissed the federal false advertising claims with prejudice, meaning plaintiffs are barred from filing a new suit based on those claims, and also dismissed the plaintiffs' false advertising claims made under state law. The court held that none of the plaintiffs in the actions had alleged or could allege any legal interest that would be protected by their lawsuit, according to a statement from the USGBC. Uh, um, their chairman and founding uh, member, uh, Rick Federizzi, uh, said that this successful outcome is a testament to our process and to our commitment to do what is right. Thousands of people around the world use LEED because it's a proven tool for achieving our mission of transforming the built environment. Uh, Henry Gifford, uh, in an interview with the Environmental Leader, which, by the way, is environmentalleader.com. I want to give them thanks for uh, as a, a reference source here. Uh, he told the environmental leader, quote, I am surprised to see the USGBC say the court found that none of the plaintiffs alleged any legal interest to be protected by our lawsuit, while our case rested on our claim that we were harmed by the USGBC's false claims. Uh, when in fact, uh, he says, uh, they average 29% higher energy use as lead buildings. Staying in business is surely a legal interest to be protected, so I'll be very interested to read the decision, uh, Gifford said in a statement. Uh, he also added that he didn't know if he would be able to appeal the case or not. Uh, nonetheless, he concluded by saying, uh, Henry said, I'm very glad I and other people took a stand for the truth. I thank the many people who supported our efforts, and we will continue to discuss what can be done to stop this tragedy, including the possibility of legal action involving plaintiffs in the court that the, that the court might view as more direct competitors. So uh, this case has been dismissed, but uh, perhaps another one will be on the horizon. And uh, it's interesting stuff. We'll keep people posted. That was interesting. We did a show or two on it. We had both sides of the right. issue discussed. And I, it looked like he had a long mountain to climb there. And, uh, you know, it's uh, going to be interesting. We'll keep up with it, and hopefully we can get one of the USGBC people on as well. Yeah. You know, I think you really should. I, I, was, I was struck by... Uh, a, a small thing, which is, you know, at the end of every press release that an association puts out, there's like an about us little paragraph. Last thing you see. And I noticed that the about lead paragraph in the press release announcing this lawsuit uh, being dismissed had language that made stronger claims than I think I've ever seen before. Um, uh, for instance, in, in, uh, in this one here, we have... Uh, by using less energy, LEED-certified buildings save money for families, businesses, and taxpayers. They reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and they contribute to a healthier environment for residents, workers, and a larger community. It also says that uh, USGBC is the driving force of an industry that is projected to contribute $554 billion to the U.S. gross domestic product over the next uh, four years. So those are, some, those are some things that I hadn't seen in their um, About Us uh, uh, promotional stuff that's new, and, and maybe since the false advertising claims were dismissed, uh, USGBC felt that they could go out and make some, some statements that were a little stronger than what we've seen uh, in recent months. Interesting. What else do you have for us, Glenn? Oh, some big news out of ASHRAE. Um, they're big news for, for the industry, really. Uh, uh, commercial and high-rise residential buildings, including federal buildings, must now meet the requirements in ASHRAE's 2007 Energy Efficiency Standard, and this is under a recent ruling issued by the U.S. Department or U.S. Uh, Department of Energy (DOE), and it finds that the standard saves more energy than the 2004 version, which uh, had been previously cited. Uh, the standard, which is 90.1-2007 Energy Standard for buildings except low-rise residential buildings has been established by the DOE as the commercial building reference standard for state building energy codes under the Federal Energy Conservation and Production Act. As a result, states are required to certify that by July 20th of 2013 that they have reviewed and updated the provisions of their own commercial building codes regarding energy efficiency 
including a demonstration that the provisions of their commercial building codes regarding uh, energy efficiency meet or exceed the 2007 edition of Standard 90.1. Now, this goes a little further because DOE also uh, has issued a rule that requires new federal buildings for which design and construction begins after October of 2012 to meet the requirements of the 2007 standard. Uh, Prior to the rules, federal and commercial buildings had to meet the requirements of a 2004 standard. Uh, This standard is uh, co-created, actually, by uh, ASHRAE and the Illuminating Engineers Society, and um, they're working on a 2013 version right now. Uh, There's a 2010 version that came out last year. The uh, federal government is a little slow on this. They're they're adopting the 2007 version to replace 2004s. 2010 is out, and people are working on 2013. (laughs) But uh, what's interesting is that uh, they say that... um, uh, 30% energy savings can be achieved using the 2010 version uh, versus the 2004 version. Uh, without plug loads, site energy savings are 32.6%, and energy cost savings are 30.1%. So if you think about that, in just you know the span of seven years, uh, that that one standard has you know, dramatically reduced uh, energy costs and consumption in, in buildings. So it's it's big news and it's good news for uh, for building owners around the world. Great. That's the the news I got for today. Just one other quick item I wanted to mention to your listeners is that the August edition of Indoor Environment Connections newspaper is now uh, online at ieconnections.com. Some headlines this month: uh, roadblocks for EPA's lead renovation rule. DOE signs an agreement to approve energy efficiency use. Uh, EPA and DOE are revising Energy Star. A major accord reached in the Florida drywall claims. Uh, ASHRAE is considering a standard for Legionnaire's disease. And HUD has a program to upgrade public housing. You can read all of that and also the answer given by Dr. Burge to the question, can you give us guidance for infection control at ieconnections.com. Thank you, Glenn. Uh, hopefully you can stay and join us for the roundup. I'd love to. Great. We'll bring you back then. Super. All right. Dan, do we have, let's get Danny back on the line. Dan Greenblatt, we've got you back. I'm here. Great. Now, there was another topic we wanted to make sure we covered here, and we've got about 10 or so minutes before we go to our roundup, and I wanted to touch base on the what I've been referring to as the IESO soot standard, but I think maybe you could uh, correct me on, and give me the proper term on that, uh, the proper title on that, and tell us a little bit about that standard. Love to. First, why don't I uh, just tell you what the uh, the actual name of the document is. It's Evaluation of Heating, Ventilation, Air Conditioning, HVAC, Interior Surfaces to Determine the Presence of Fire-Related Particulate as a Result of a Fire in a Structure. And I would say that when I generally refer to it, I often call it the soot char standard. Char is actually the initial. I should probably explain that just a bit, that uh, what we're doing here is to try and have a standardized approach. Uh, There was no standard approach to determine if after a fire in a structure, uh, the HVAC mechanical system was affected by that fire. So now there what we have is a protocol. The purpose of the document is to specify the evaluation process through a specific inspection and sampling protocol to determine the presence or absence of char and or soot in the HVAC system. Danny, before you go on, I want to make sure I also mention here, because I didn't when I phrased the question, I believe the Restoration Industry Association, RIA, is also, I don't know if they're a co- creator of this standard or how it will be worded, but I know they're very intimately involved and I wanted to make sure we gave them the proper credit. RIA worked in conjunction with IESO to produce this standard. Um, There was a time when, uh, as the chairman of the Environmental Council at RIA, uh, this idea came in, it actually came, the idea itself came from Tom Yacobellis, who worked with me and the council and RIA to produce this standard. This will be IESO's first ANSI certified standard. I think that's so important. This is an ANSI 
certified standard. It has gone through, I should probably tell you where it stands in the process. Um, uh, and why that, you, before you do that, let me make sure we, the acronym, please don't get us. American National Standards Institute, ANSI. Go ahead, Danny. Sorry. Okay, that's right. That's fine. Um, I forget what I was saying. Oh, you're, the, uh, you're going to tell us the process. Okay. I apologize. Okay, here, uh, the IESO consensus body has approved sending this standard to ANSI for its consideration as an ANSI-recognized standard. Uh, IESO produces standards, and as a matter of fact, the listeners can go to www.ieso.org and see what other standards are being worked on by IESO. And this one, in conjunction with RIA, is ANSI is IESO's first ANSI standard, and it is past the consensus body being moved along to ANSI very shortly for approval as a standard. And can you just kind of summarize the, I guess, the scope of the standard? I mean, you, you, you gave us a brief overview of, uh, you gave us the title, et cetera. So I, I guess it's going to help people determine if an HVAC system is contaminated with soot or char, and then we would also provide some method for determining when it's been cleaned up. Right. We haven't really specified what this is for, but in a situation where you've had a fire in a structure, uh, there are numerous people, parties, uh, stakeholders uh, who may have uh, you know different feelings, different agendas, uh, and there are a lot of other issues involved, including costs, health-related factors, uh, and other uses of the building and the system. Uh, Having a standard creates an objective criteria. There was no standard protocol to determine if a system had been affected by a fire, smoke, soot event before. Now there is a standard to determine if that system has been affected, and uh, you can decide what your actions will be from there. But there was no standard. Now there's a standard uh, that, is, uh, that has a, a protocol mapped out for you. And how to make that determination? And this is a the I know part. the second part was: is there a a component within the standard that will let you know, or will give some guidance? I guess I could say on when the project is completed. No, no. Okay. This is only to determine if the uh, if the HVAC mechanical system has been affected. That's what this standard is for: a protocol to be able to determine that. Okay. And I assume there are other standards. Well, I know there's at least one other standard in the work, in the works for fire-related restoration projects. Are you familiar with those at all? I'm familiar with it. I'm not working on it, and I know what you're talking about. Yes. Okay, Cliff. I know this is a, an item that was near and dear to your heart in the past, and I'm, right. I'm just no, curious if you had any comments no, or questions. It is actually. Um, you know, I just want to jump ahead a little bit. But um, will the new document deal with sooting from candles and um, other, you know, incense and other things that, you know, people have a tendency to uh, burn in their homes? No, not at all, Cliff. Uh, this document, uh, I don't want to repeat myself, it's very specific when there's been a, a fire inside of a structure to determine if that fire uh, has affected the HVAC mechanical system. It does not deal with smoke and so there may be times when those are backgrounds in the interview process before uh, after an event probably there will be a part of the interview that talks about candles incense burning and things like that in a trained microscopist will be able to see those things on the samples uh, on the uh, whether it be a, a tape sample or a white sample they'll be able to a trained microscopist will be able to tell but that is not a part of the standard at all really and those are the two, as I understand it, those are the two types of samples you're looking at or that will be included in the standard is a, a tape lift type sample and then, if necessary, a wipe sample. Is that accurate? I think that's a fair way to say it. Obviously, a visual inspection is going to be a first step. You may not need to do any sampling if you look inside of a system and, oh, look, uh, there was a fire and you can see the residue of it there. You don't even have to go to a tape sample, which is, would be the first thing you would do. And because you're looking for, uh, as a primary marker, char, char is a primary indicator, 
if there's residue from the fire uh, in the system. Uh, it consists of fragments of combusted material, typically greater than one micron in size and shape. Uh, they make it easily identifiable, especially to a trained microscopist. Sometimes it might look clean and there might not be any char visible, but soot particles, the secondary indicator of a fire residue, uh, soot particles are submicron in size and surfaces might look clean. However, when you uh, wipe, it, you might get clustered clumps, uh, amalg uh, you might get clusters of soot that darken the surface of the white, and so that's a secondary marker. I guess I have to ask this question, even though it might have been asked and answered uh, previously. What about puffbacks? You know, you live in an area where there's a lot of fuel oil heat. Uh, will that be covered, or is that going to come sometime in the future? Um, I think that that, uh, I, my immediate reaction, we didn't speak about that specifically in the committee that I remember. And the reason is if you had a puffback, you would need to clean the system. And if you wanted to use these testing protocols to show that there was, it, it seems like a visual inspection, a puffback, it would be obvious. I just don't think that um, a fire inside of a structure and a puffback are necessarily, on my, in my mind, the same thing. You would be cleaning it after a puffback. Okay. Danny, we've got, let's get one more question in. I've had, I have one other topic here I wanted to touch on, then we can go to a roundup, but you, you, in our intro, we mentioned that you're a volunteer on the board of directors for both the Indoor Environmental Standards Organization, which we just talked a little bit about, but also the Indoor Air Quality Association, which is another sponsor of the show. We certainly like to, we, we appreciate their sponsorship and like to mention, mention them again. But I'm just curious, historically, IAQA was started pretty much by HVAC contractors down in Florida, and then... You know, I served on the board for six years, so I'm very familiar with the makeup of the board over the years. It, it kind of changed and became a very consultant-heavy uh, board of directors, let's put it that way, if not membership. And we always had a hard time getting contractors on the board, and I know that you, thank goodness, stepped up and jumped on the board here recently along with Kent Rauhauser, who was a guest a couple weeks back, and we certainly appreciate that. I'm wondering why... If you could help us understand why it's so difficult to get contractors on the board, or if you have any thoughts on that issue. Um, I guess I have thoughts on it. I wish I had a better answer. I just think there's such a need for an organization like IAQA for contractors and consultants to work together. IAQA was, as you said, created by contractors uh, who uh, they had a desire to work with the consultants. Uh, contractors and consultants each make up over 40% of the membership. Uh, there are labs, vendors, government, and so forth uh, that make up the rest of it. Um, and you're right that the balance, the balance of contractors to consultants, um, there, has, uh, there has been a little bit of a shift. There were more contractors on the board in the beginning. And I know that you first approached me along with other, a couple of other board members, and that was probably four years ago. And what I can say is I was busy. Uh, I think that was the reason that I didn't uh, want to be on the board at the time. I had never been on the board. I'd been a member of IAQA. I was busy. I wish I had a better answer for you, but I want to say right now, really loud and clear to anybody who's listening, we could really use some good contractor uh, uh, volunteer help to help work with IAQA uh, on committees, on the board. I would love it if you'd give me a call. You'll know how to get in touch with me. And we, we could use more contractors. I don't know why there aren't more contractors who have tried to be on the board. I wish there were. Uh, I love working on the board as a contractor. Boy, is it challenging. And I love it. <laughs> I, you know, you, you got a lot of nerve being out trying to make a living, Danny. Come on. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, really, I, I was thinking uh, about this uh, recently, uh, not connected with this call, but I, I was wondering to myself, what is the difference between a contractor and a, a consultant, a certified industrial hygienist? Uh, we have businesses. Uh, as a member of RIA, everybody, almost everybody, seemed to be a contractor. There were people that work, that do work in RIA. But what is it about consultants that uh, they are on the board and we as contractors aren't? I, 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 all you contractors out there, give me a call. Got it. Got it. Let's go to the roundup here. 
go once around the hoop uh, let's start with glenn feldman i know you've got to have a question for danny and then we'll go to the dieter dr wow and uh cliff and i'll wrap it up with uh, whatever time we have left hello am i here you're uh-huh. on you're on all right great well you know danny and i we, we we go way back i've known danny for uh upwards of 20 20 plus years uh when i was a young buck at the national air cleaners Association. actually when we first met uh, what I wanted to know from Danny is, um, you know, we used to joke years and years ago because we'd go to IAQ conferences back at when IAQ was even even wasn't even a term people were using every day, and a lot of consultants and industrial hygienists and things would talk about uh, how they would get paid for their work and that there there was a need but there wasn't a marketplace, and we would sit back with big smiles on our faces knowing that. HVAC system cleaning contractors were, were getting paid handsomely and, and appropriately for doing indoor environmental work while others were struggling to try to figure out where the dollars would come from. I want to know from Danny's perspective how he's seen that change over the last 20 years, uh, whereas you know a while ago it seemed like the contracting community had the lion's share of IAQ work. Does he see more of it now hitting the consultant's uh, desk before it's getting to him, or is it similar to the way it was back then? Certainly, uh, more of it goes through the consultant's desk before it gets to us. And I think that we're the last people that people really want to see coming into their building. Uh, What additional do they get after paying us and we're gone? They already had air in their building, and they really don't want to pay for still having air. And they do go through consultants more than before. I think that um, we haven't grown larger and larger, but we've maintained... uh, I'm not sure that I'm really answering the question. We've maintained uh, who we are in the industry in this area, and we get really good work, and we get it through the consultants. Much more of it comes from the consultants now than it did before. It seems like they get uh, we get contacted, and we refer consultants in, and then we get it uh, back when there is work very often. And, and that did that re- answer the question? Yeah, it does. It, yep. it also reinforces the earlier discussion about teamwork on these projects, Danny. I mean, early on, Maybe you didn't have a consultant to turn to uh, as readily as you do today. And certainly you were being called first anyway, and the building owner was counting on your expertise. And so uh, they didn't necessarily want to bring in someone else. So I think it answers it very well. Let's get Dr. Wow on the line. Uh, Dieter, do we have you on the line? Hello, Dieter. Yes, I'm here. <laughs> Welcome. I am here. Comments, of questions? Of course, as usual, I have a couple of comments. <laughs> All right. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I listened very carefully what Dan had to say uh, uh, about uh, uh, a water project in a control tower. I mean, to build the damn control tower, there are no more secrets. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot believe, I cannot believe that there are some that are leaking somewhere. Uh, here's another thing for uh, the, uh, the, 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 the visitors, the hearers, the uh, listeners, the listeners, whatever. Um, licensed pilots do know how to land an airplane without a tower. I have done it many, many, many times. And don't get me wrong, I wouldn't want to screw around in New York or Chicago or Atlanta, but I did it over there, and I, um, uh, a gang of um, uh, 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 controllers saved my life, literally my life, in Arizona. I was fighting a headwind of about 60 miles maybe 60 knots, it was awful. 
and I couldn't get where I wanted to go. And I finally, you know, hit the mayday, 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 and I need help. And these guys, I mean, they are pros. It's just unbelievable how good they are. And they landed me in my airplane with 125 horsepower. <laughs> I have two fuel tanks, one in the left one and one in the right one, 50 and 50 gallons. <laughs> and after I landed at the plane with those guys, and I mean, I had sweaty hands, and they were absolutely fantastic. I bought them a couple of beers that evening. <laughs> and I'm sure. I, we, I had two gallons left in the tank. Wow. Two gallons. I mean, they are out of this world. Unbelievable. The other thing that Dan mentioned, and that is interesting, with that soot and so on, we got to watch that. <clears throat> if you are smoking a cigarette, you are generating soot. That's what it's called. We call it cigarette smoke. And um, I was surprised. I replaced my uh, uh, heater a couple of years ago by now, and I looked into the ductwork, and I'm, I was one of those idiots who smoked. Uh, I'm an ex-smoker. I, I don't even look at a cigarette anymore. And I thought that there would be a lot of dirt in the ductwork because... Yeah, I had been smoking here for several, several years with friends and cigars and a pipe and you name it. But that may cover up uh, yeah, something during a fire when you have third generation, which probably is a little bit more than just smoking a cigarette. But then again, a thousand cigarettes is maybe as much as, you know, a one-minute fire. That's a good point, Dieter. Danny, did they talk about that at all in homes that there was heavy smoking in? Uh, well, once again, I go back to uh, my main comment, which is that when we're, when you called in, when one is called in because of an, uh, a fire or smoke event in a house and the tape samples can, uh, the protocols, the testing, and it goes to the lab, a trained microscopy, will be able to tell the particles, the char particles, the irregularly shaped, greater than one micron uh, size, they'll be able to see these physical characteristics of these fragments and be able, to, they're not there because someone was smoking and being called in for that purpose, being right. called in because there wasn't. Well, a yes, absolutely. And a good microscopist, which I was many, many years ago, he can also um, separate... Um, a diesel exhaust particulate matter, which is very small, certainly respirable, in the range of yeah, 10 micrometers or less. And uh, I also measured, I don't know how many particles I sized in my life, uh, from uh, uh, Pittsburgh air pollution from the, uh, from the steel mills, uh, that's called fly ash, and from the power plants. But, uh, yes, that can be a, a, a good eye. It's, it's like a mycologist. A good eye can say this one is that uh, 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 mold and this one is that mold and this one is that mold and this one is that mold. There's no doubt about it. Yes, a good microscopist, and I know a couple of very good ones whom I worked, uh, they can distinguish that. There's no doubt about that. Yes, I agree. Great. Well, let's let's um Dieter, if we can uh we always appreciate your comments and we've got to wrap it up here did you have one other you wanted to add or oh we missed we lost Dieter for a moment there but uh, oh no i uh, i'm oh. uh, uh, i'm fine i mean it's it's uh let dan uh, uh finish it off uh, he should have the last word thanks a lot Dieter. we always appreciate you coming on and joining us dan i just wanted to add one final question for you and and then maybe we'll have a, a comment from you but first is there anything we missed that you'd like to add or anything that you'd like to make sure our listeners hear um i guess the only thing i, I want to say is that uh, i'm really thankful for the opportunity to be on the phone for my company and my team here uh steve goslin ron fallon jay cart lane money mac nelly uh, jack i want to be i'm really thankful because that's how i have the opportunity to be doing this in the associations www.ieso.org and www.iaqa.com.org 
they're really it's a good place to go uh, for a resource for learning for a benefit thank you Danny Howard uh, what's your website for listeners www.breatheeasier.com that's breathe easier like what people do after we've been to their house they breathe easier b-r-e-a-t-h-e-a-s-i-e-r.com i'll bet you've got you've had some people that have really wanted that one for years i don't know do you get many calls or, or an occasional call saying hey can i have that website <laughs> uh, not only that but i have people saying hey i have breathe easier and uh, you're in violation of my uh, rights or something so <laughs> yes, yes yes sounds great well danny thanks so much for joining us we really appreciate having you here and look forward to seeing you again soon thank you so much it's fun our pleasure. All right. Let's, uh, first of all, again, thanks to Danny Greenblatt for joining us, to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Always fun, Joe. Back in the saddle. Uh, of course, to Glenn Fellman for joining us with IE Connections, What's News, to the uh, the Stone Cold man over there, Austin, Stone Cold Novak, our, our engineer for helping out, and, of course, to you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Thanks so much for joining us. Come back in three weeks now. We'll be back for our fifth year anniversary, August, I think, or September, I believe it's going to be the 16th, or it'll be on the announcements, and we'll be back after our summer vacation. Look forward to a big bash on that date. Take care. Not a lawyer has a lot of bad habits, but only ones that help me survive. Don't deprive yourself of the full power. Be a survivor. Don't smoke. Why don't you stick your head on my butt and fight for air? <laughs> This has been another IAQ Radio production. Call recording has been completed.